0: Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34 is where we'll start. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, we're not going to spend too much time on this section tonight for a couple of reasons. Come on down to the front here. There's a spot here. We're not going to spend too much time on this for a couple of reasons. One is this. We've already seen Jesus heal two other blind men in our study of the book of Matthew. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 9 and look at verses 27 through 31. Matthew chapter 9 verses 27 through 31. It says and as Jesus passed on from there two blind men followed him crying aloud have mercy on us son of david when he entered the house the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them do you believe that i'm able to do this they said to him yes lord and then he touched their eyes and saying according to your faith be it done to you and their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them see that no one knows about it but they went away and spread his fame in all their district and we've also seen him do other miracles, not just the healing of two blind men, but we've also seen him do other miracles. And in chapter 9, look also at verses 1 through 8, for the purpose of revealing his power and his authority, and also his power and authority to forgive sins. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, what, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So we see that Jesus is healing people to demonstrate. Remember, we've already looked at this, that the kingdom of God was there and it was greater than the kingdom of Satan. He's also showing that he has the power to and the authority to forgive sins. But there are a couple of things in this story of Jesus healing these two blind men uh, here in this situation that I think will not only help us tonight, but also prepare us for chapter 21. Now, Usually I read to you Mark and Luke's account if they have that or John's account if they have that. And there are accounts of this in Mark and Luke. But I'm not going to do that for you tonight if you want to go back and look yourself later on. But if you do, you'll notice that Mark and Luke both say there's only one blind man. Here in Matthew, we see that there's two. But Mark and Luke give us his name. His name is Bartimaeus. So I'm going to give you guys a little quiz tonight. What was Bartimaeus' father's name? You're close. The answer is Timaeus. And actually, if you were to go look at Mark and Luke's account, they actually say that. You you may or may not know this, but in the Hebrew, Bar is son of. Have you ever heard Jesus, remember he told Simon, he said, you're Simon, Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Bar-Timaeus is the son of Timaeus. And actually, Mark and Luke's account bring that out. Now, people have wrestled with, well, how come Mark and Luke say there's only one, but Matthew says there's two? Here's the answer, because there's two. And most likely, Mark and Luke only reference the fact that one of them, Bartimaeus, was doing most of the talking. And so that's most likely what's going on here. The scripture is inerrant. So if the scripture says there were two, there were two here. Mark and Luke just happened to talk about the one who was louder, I guess, of the two but even though these two men were blind, they had enough spiritual insight to know who Jesus truly was. Look closely here at what they say. They cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, we've already done this study back when we started in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, how Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the descendant of Abraham. We've looked at the prophecies already that all talked about the fact that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David And so on. So when they cry out and call him Lord and son of David, they're acknowledging that he's God and he's also the promised Messiah. So they've, even though blind, got a lot of spiritual insight. But I also want to deal with the fact that they cry out and ask for his mercy. I want us to talk about that for a little bit tonight, just because in asking for his mercy, they were acknowledging their sin And that to be healed was to not receive what they deserved. By saying, have mercy on us, they're acknowledging their sin. And they're also saying that if you heal us, it's not because you owe it to us or we deserve it. It's because you've not given us what we deserve. We all hopefully understand that because of sin, that's why there's sickness. That's why there's death. That's why there's pandemics and all that. We can trace it all the way back to the fall. And what we deserve is to bear the consequences of our sin. But they cry out and they say, look, have mercy on us. Turn me to Psalm 51. It's a very familiar psalm. It's a psalm that was written by David after he had sinned with Bathsheba and after he had come under conviction because of it. But I want you to look closely at the attitude and the heart attitude of David as he writes this. In Psalm 51, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, by the way, he's not saying that in the conce- uh, conceiving process she was sinning. It was just I've had sin since I was created. It, it's passed on to us. Behold, you delight In truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm going to give you another quiz tonight. David here says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. But at the beginning, he said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. So David says, because of your love for me and your steadfast love that you have, your love that never changes, your love that never leaves. I'm going to ask for your mercy because of the sin that I've committed but you've broken my bones. Now, we hopefully understand he's not literally saying that God broke his bones. But if you remember, he, David himself said, I think it's in Psalm 32, talked about how when he was in sin and under conviction, it felt like his bones were being broken. He felt under the weight of the conviction. How come God's breaking of his bones in the sense of making him feel the weight of his sin, how come that's God's love? So that he'll come to- Very good. You got it. That's it. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And at the same time, sometimes his kindness is to show us the depth of our sin. That's why in Matthew chapter five, we see in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn, grieve for their sin. Folks, conviction of God is actually a gift. Because if we weren't convicted, what would we do? Nothing. We'd be stuck in our sin, can keep sinning, think it's no big deal and end up in hell. It's his mercy. It's his grace that actually breaks us under the conviction. Now, after we're saved as Christians, he still convicts us. If you're not feeling convicted as a Christian, there's something wrong. There are times that the spirit of God does convict us. Now, it's not because we're headed for hell or anything like that, but it does affect our relationship and our fellowship with him, does it not? And in his love, he'll sometimes become quiet and the spirit of God will convict. And when you feel that way, we have a tendency to want to beat ourselves up, don't we? God's mad. God doesn't like me right now. Oh, you're going to hear about this tonight. Folks, Satan doesn't want you to understand God's love for you. And when his Holy Spirit is convicting you, it's because he loves you. It's because you actually are missing out on the deep, relationship that he has and he wants and the fellowship that he wants for you. So when you're under conviction, understand that it's God's grace and his mercy coming to you to point out your sin. Now, don't miss this. Go back and look at Matthew chapter 20 again. Don't miss the fact that even though Jesus knew what they wanted, he still had them ask. Look again at verse 32 and stopping... Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, again, did Jesus already know what they wanted? Of course he did. The scripture tells us that. Go to Matthew chapter 6 real quick. Matthew chapter 6, look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus is teaching on prayer. If you remember from our study in Matthew 6, there's a seat up here if you want to take one up here. Matthew chapter 6, look at verses 7 and 8. He says, and when you pray... Oh, sorry. Let's go to verse seven. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So here's another question. I'm giving you guys quizzes tonight. Why does God want us to ask him for things that he already knows we need and want? I'm sorry. Definitely it's humbling. Go ahead. Tim. Very good. That's it. Honestly, you hear what Tim said? So that we'll come to him. Listen closely. And I'm going to show this to you scripturally. Prayer and asking things of God reminds us that he's the giver of every good gift. Actually, the Bible says in the book of James, chapter four, verses one and two, and especially in verse two, we, we don't have because we don't ask. God's designed it that there's a lot of things he wants to give us, but he wants us to ask. And he also wants us in asking to be acknowledging that when it does come, it came from him. Go with me to James chapter one. Let me show you what I'm talking about. James chapter one. Look at verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. Again, his steadfast love. God loved us so that when we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. When we were his enemy, he sent his son to die for us. And then that passage in, James, sorry, in Romans chapter five goes on and says, if he did that while we were his enemy, how much more shall we be spared from his wrath? Through now being reconciled to him. Guys, but let's be honest. Doesn't Satan go out there and try to convince you that God's upset with you all the time? He's always when things don't go like you want or all of a sudden financially you go into a downturn. Your first thought is God's upset. I've done something wrong. He's wanting to punish me. And you've got to let the truth of the scriptures sink in. God loves you. And not only does he love you, he loved you before you knew him. And he sent his son to die for you. He provided a way for you to be reconciled. And on top of that, after salvation, now that you've been reconciled, you can experience the full extent of his love. I'm going to say something to you that I taught on the cruise the last time we had our cruise back in November. As we were dealing with that passage in Romans chapter five, when it says, how much more, you know, love can we experience from God? I asked people this question. Does God love Christians more than he loves the lost? No, he loves the people that are going to hell just as much as he loves you and me. The difference, though, is they don't get to experience the full extent of his love. Yet what does Satan do? He tries to convince us that there are periods that God's love toward us changes and varies. Listen to it again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You may feel like God changes his attitude towards you throughout the week, throughout the day. He never does. And we've got to let that truth sink in. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Look at verse 27. In John chapter 3, verse 27. John the Baptist said this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Everything comes from God. And the reason why God tells us to ask Him for things that He already knows we need and already knows we want is so that when we do and He comes through, we'll all acknowledge that it came from Him. Actually, the Bible says everything does come from Him. John even brought that out. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Yet how many of us fall into that mindset of thinking we have to earn God's favor? We have to earn God's gifts. We have to be good enough. We have to do these things. We still don't get it. God is for us. And if he says no, that is best. If he says wait, That is best because he's got a reason and a purpose and a plan. And we need to let the truth of the scripture sink into our hearts because on a daily basis, we're in a battle. If you ever go back and take a look at the book of Job, go spend your time in the first two chapters, really looking closely at the conversation between God and Satan. And listen closely to what Satan says. Satan says to God, the only reason Job worships you is because you've blessed him. You take that stuff away, you let bad stuff happen to him, and he'll curse you to your face. The only reason he loves you is because you've been good to him. And then, of course, when you get to chapter two, what does his wife come and say? Curse God and die. die. Where are those words coming from? The enemy who's trying to convince Job that God's not for him. I could go all the way through the scriptures and keep reminding you of this truth and show you over and over and over. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, I say to every one of you, actually, let me back up. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought." In other words, the only reason I'm even giving you an apostolic command is because that's the role that God gave me. I'm not taking a role that isn't mine. It's a role that God gave me. Everything I have is from him. Yet how often do we hear things like this? Oh, man, I really wanted that, but it didn't happen. And that guy kept me from getting that promotion or that person. Folks, Jesus himself said in Revelation chapter two that he's the God that every door he opens, no man can shut. And every door he shuts, no man can open. Yet we walk around as his children, ignorant of the fact that he's for us, that he loves us, that his love for us will never change. It won't vary. It won't go up and down. And we can't let the circumstances change our minds on that. Now, I'm preaching to myself, too. I I, I work, as you know, for Just Preacher Ministries. And whether the giving's up or the giving's down, sometimes I feel good and I feel bad. I feel like God's for us. I feel like God's against us. Maybe he wants me to do something else. Hey, giving's good. Maybe things are good. You know, I'm doing it's not tied to how good I am. Thank God. God. (laughs) But that's why, by the way, That's why the scriptures over and over in the Old Testament keep talking about God's love. But what's the word they use over and over and over? And if you don't know, quickly go to go to go to Psalm 136. It's not everlasting. Although it does talk about his everlasting love. Steadfast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it also talks in other places about his steadfast love. But look at it again uh, it, over and over and over. It talks about his steadfast love, his never ending love, his lure. Love endures forever. You look at that whole psalm over and over and over and over in every verse. It's steadfast. It doesn't change. It endures forever. Let that truth sink into your heart. Now, lastly, from this section, notice how Jesus healed and what was his emotion towards them when he did it. Look again at verse 33. He's just said, very good, Tim. It was pity. He said, what do you want me to do? They said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What's another word we might use instead of pity? Compassion. Compassion. Actually, some translations say compassion. That's a great word. I'm going to do this fast. If you want to keep up with me, you're welcome to write them down and look at it later on. But I'm going to hit real quick some uh, scriptures that kind of bring this out. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 32. Matthew chapter 15, verse 32 says it this way. It says, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. By the way, don't miss that. Jesus knew whether they'd eaten, whether they'd not eaten. He knew how long it had been since they'd eaten. And he knew how far they'd each traveled that's an encouragement to me as Becky and I are about to hit the road where praise the Lord, Lord willing, we don't get the virus. And then we're able to keep going but starting in July, actually starting. I was finally preach for the first time on a Sunday in two weeks, not this Sunday, but next Sunday after that. I haven't preached on a Sunday morning since March, second Sunday in March. It's been 13 weeks since the traveling preacher got to preach on a Sunday morning. But the churches have all been shut. But now they're opening back up, and then my schedule's getting booked up, and Becky and I are going to hit the road, and we're going to be preaching uh, twice, once at Central Baptist uh, on the last Sunday in June, first Sunday in July at First Baptist in the Atlantic. Then we hit the road, and we're going to be in... Uh, Chesapeake, Virginia. Chris and Pat are going to be up there with us. and He's going to be cooking at a banquet that I'm going to be speaking at up there. Uh, Then we go to Galax, Virginia for a week. And then we're going to go to Mississippi, uh, outside Tupelo, Mississippi for a week. Just got called. Church want me to come preach on the end times. And I can't wait for that. They're actually going to invite all these other churches to come on in. It's going to be a fun thing. Then we're going to end up. We don't know where the next week is yet. It was supposed to be New Hampshire, but that just got canceled. But then we're going to be in New Jersey and so on. And we may get a flat tire. But you know what? If we get a flat tire, God knows exactly where we are, where the repair is and all that stuff. I need to be reminded of this, too, because, folks, in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart. The tow truck driver probably needs the gospel. (laughs) Who knows? The tow truck driver might need the gospel. I don't know what his plan is. But we have a tendency, though, when that stuff happens to lose sight of this truth, he cares Exactly. He knows what would happen if he didn't provide. Exactly. I love that. Unless they faint in the way. Go to John chapter 11. Look at verses 32 through 35. And the story of Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. Not interesting. Did Jesus know that Lazarus was going to rise from the dead? Wasn't Jesus, though, the one that let him die? Lord, the one you love is sick. And he let him die. And he also knew, though, that he wasn't going to be staying in the tomb because he turned to his disciples and said, "This sickness will not end in death." Yet, if he knew that he was going to rise from the dead, why did he cry? Why did he weep? Because he hurt for them. He saw their their grief, and they didn't see what he saw. They didn't understand the stuff that he understood, and it hurt him to watch them hurt, folks. He cares. He really, really cares. Satan doesn't want you to know that, but he really cares. Go to Matthew chapter nine. Look at verses thirty five through thirty eight. In Matthew chapter nine, verses thirty five through thirty eight. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, I'm going to paraphrase it. Ask me. Ask me. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Folks, I'm just going to say this to you. Two things. One, you're missing out on a lot that Jesus wants for you because you haven't asked. We miss out on a lot that he wants for us just because we don't ask. I know that he's been challenging me in the same way. Just ask me. and But Lord, how do I know if it's your will? Ask me and you'll find out if it's my will. And on top of that, how often have any of us heard the statement like this? If God were a God of love, then why would fill in the blank? If God really, have you ever heard that? Where's that coming from, by the way, folks? It's coming from Satan. God cares. Let me take you to one more passage. Is Isaiah 49. Go to Isaiah 49. Look at verses 8 through 16. Now, this is talking about the nation of Israel, but I hope you remember that all the promises of Israel are ours right now. And the ones that are to come, we're going to get to be a part of. But Isaiah 49, look at the heart of God toward Israel. Verses 8 through 16. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear They shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. And I'll make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the lands of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Here it's a talk, a prophecy about how when at the end of the tribulation period, God's going to gather the remnant of Israel and he's going to remember in our study of Revelation, how the earthquakes are going to happen all over the globe and all the mountains are going to be leveled and all the flat the low places are going to be raised up and he's going to gather them. He's going to bring them all back. But they've been saying, God forgot us. God has he's left us. And God says, you still don't get it. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, the loving father actually is a great right way to describe the story. When the son said, I want nothing to do with you, the father let him go. But he sat on the porch waiting and watching. Folks, he cares. He cares. He cares. But Satan's going to try on a daily basis to get you to question that, to get you to doubt it. You got to let this truth sink in. Go back to Matthew chapter 21. I told you we're only going to spend a little bit of time on that one section, so we only took a half an hour. That's not bad. Matthew 21, look at verses 1 through 17. Because of how far we got last night, we won't finish this section, but we'll get most of it, hopefully, swallowed. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on them their cloaks and he sat on them. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now remember from our previous week's study, it says, As they drew near to Jerusalem, why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? I heard it to die. Yes, it's the Passover time is coming up, but it's different this time. This time he's going to die. He's been letting them know and preparing them for that. But as he comes into Jerusalem this time, though, he stops outside of the city and he goes to this place called Bethpage and he tells his disciples, go into the city and you're going to see a mama donkey there and you're going to see a baby next to it. Go ahead and uh, untie them. If anybody says anything to you, Just tell him the Lord needs it, master needs it, and he'll he'll send them right away. He takes the mama donkey and the baby donkey that had never been ridden. And he brings them to Jesus and Jesus gets on the foal there and rides it into Jerusalem. A lot of people don't realize this, but Jesus is fulfilling two prophecies when he does this. One of them you probably all know and should because I just read it to you. It's the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. 9. Go to Zechariah 9.9 9 again real quick. Let's read it from the actual uh, book of Zechariah. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't that interesting? So to fulfill the prophecy, he rides in on the donkey. But here's the tricky part. Becky and Jeremy can't answer because they were at Bible study last Tuesday night, last night. What other prophecy is he fulfilling right now as he's riding into Jerusalem besides Zechariah 9 9? There's another prophecy that he is literally fulfilling as he rides into Jerusalem. Any idea? If you don't know, it's okay. Most Christians would be oblivious to this one. Go ahead. Is it the one where everyone praises him and then they turn against him? Actually, uh, you're gonna see that there is prophecy being fulfilled and they're praising him, but in him riding into Jerusalem. Go to me to Daniel chapter nine. Go with me to Daniel chapter nine. Look closely at what's going on here. I mean, set the stage for you. We're going to start in verse 20 of chapter 9. But in the setting the stage, as you know, Daniel is in captivity in Babylon and he's been reading the prophecies and the prophets and he's been reading in Jeremiah how God had said that their captivity in Babylon would be 70 years. He's done the math. He realizes the captivity time period is about to come to a close. He starts praying about Jerusalem being rebuilt and, and, and the walls being rebuilt and, the, and, and all that. And this is what happens. It says in verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks, or seventy sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem to the coming coming of an anointed one. By the way, in the Hebrew, it actually says Messiah. Until the coming of the Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he, this is the false prince, the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out. Now, that's hard for a lot of you to grasp, but if you were to take the time and do the study, and we have in our study of the book of Revelation, let me remind you that as Daniel's praying about the 70 years of captivity that they were in Babylon, Gabriel comes and says, let me tell you, 70 sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city. Now, that word seven is like our word dozen. If I said I have a dozen, what do I have? 12. We don't know what of, but if I say I have a dozen, we know that we have 12. That word translated sevens or weeks in your Bibles is like our word dozen, but it means seven of something. But as you do the math and you do the research, you'll find that this prophecy of seventy sevens is seventy seven year periods. It's a seven is one seven year period. So seventy sevens is four hundred and ninety years. And then the prophecy starts By him saying, know this, from the decree to go out and to rebuild the walls in the city of Jerusalem, there's going to be seven sevens or 49 years. And then after that, there's going to be 62 more sevens, which is 434 years, totaling 483 years. Oh, by the way, um, if you were to look at it later on, you want to write this down and go double check it. You'll see in Nehemiah chapter 2. Verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 is the decree to go back and rebuild the the city of Jerusalem. Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. in the month of Nisan made the decree that Nehemiah could go back and begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And the timetable began at that decree in Nisan of 445 B.C. There were 49 years. And then another 62 sevens or 434 years for a total of 483 years. Remember, 490 years are decreed for the city of Jerusalem and for the people of Israel. Does anybody want to take a wild guess on what day Jesus rode into Jerusalem? It was on the end of the 483 years of that prophecy to the literal day. If you were to go do the math and you do the research, you can find this all out. It's all there. Many people have proven it and shown it. The Jews considered a year 360 days. 360 days was a year. We do 365 and sometimes there's a leap year and all that. But in the Jewish mindset, keeping in track with the moons, there were 360 days in a year. With that math, you'll find that from the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that went out by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. in the month of Nisan, Till the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem was exactly 483 years to the day that he rode in to fulfill the prophecy. And the anointed one, the Messiah, came. Oh, what did the prophecy say was going to happen to the Messiah, the anointed one? He was going to be cut off. And it's like the prophecy all of a sudden was just put on hold. We know that the Bible says that Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the age of the church age, if you will. Israel's been put on hold for a little bit. Uh, they've experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. At the end of the church age, there's going to be a rapture of the church, and then God will finish because there's one seven-year period left in the prophecy. Remember, 490 se- years are prophesied for the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. At the end of the church age, there's going to be this one last seven, 300. Sixty days, seven times, we know as the tribulation period. And then we see here in verse 27, this Antichrist is going to make a strong covenant with many for one seven or one week. And for half of the week, he'll put an end to the sacrifice and offering. We know at the midpoint of the tribulation, he's going to step into the temple, declare himself to be God. But people don't realize, and a lot of people missed it, that the prophecy in Daniel told them exactly when the Messiah was going to show up. It's going to be 483 years after the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that exact day. By the way, how do you think Jesus felt riding into Jerusalem that day? By the way, if you, if you don't know, I can show it to you. Uh, Go real quick with me to Luke chapter 19. Go to Luke 19. Look at verses 28 through 34. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany... At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation they're all praising him and Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, He begins to weep. Why? Because he knows even though they're praising him and acknowledge him as king, he knows that they're going to change their mind within a few days. And those same people are going to be crying out, crucify him. And he knows that there's going to be this time period where they go through this hardening. Where they're going to be scattered they're going to be the city's going to be destroyed the temple's going to be destroyed there's not going to be any land of israel or people of israel in the land for almost 2000 years and it grieves him now a lot of people don't realize this as well but when they were laying their coats on the ground and cutting the palm branches and laying them down they were literally saying you are the king go to second kings chapter 9 let me show you what i'm talking about In 2 Kings chapter 9, we'll start in verse 11, just verses 11 through 13. uh, There was a prophet that had been sent to go anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel. And so he goes in, he says, I need to speak with you. And Jehu says, look, you can speak to me in front of these guys that are here on the porch. He said, no, we need to do this in private. So they go into the house. The prophet anoints Jehu as the next king of Israel. And then he just busts feet like you wouldn't believe. Just runs like, like a crazy man out of the house. Verse 11 of 2 Kings 9 When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, y- You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That's not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And that was a way of saying, you can walk on me. You're my king. You're my lord. You're my master. They took their coats off and they laid them down. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and everybody's taking their garments off and laying them on the ground, they were acknowledging you are the king. We saw that in Luke's account. Blessed is the king. They're praising him as the promised Messiah, the coming king. And like you talked about, go to Psalm 118. Tim, everybody go there with Tim if you want. But go to Psalm 118. Look at verses 19 through 29. It's a prophecy That was partially fulfilled. As you will see, it's not been totally fulfilled yet. Psalm 118, look at verses 19 through 29. In Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. By the way, that's Hosanna. Save now. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That sound familiar? We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. But this has only been partially fulfilled. Yes, they did cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, save now. But go with me to Matthew chapter 23 and you'll see that this was only partially fulfilled. In Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, we see Jesus making a very interesting statement. Now, I've taught you that the book of Matthew isn't chronologically in order, but it is once you start getting to the going to Jerusalem in the Passover week and all that. So we're seeing him ride into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. A few days later in Matthew 23, listen to what he says in verses 37 through 39. He says, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So let me ask you a question. Had they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord yet? Yes, they had. Remember chapter 21? We just read it. So what is Jesus then a few days later saying, what does he mean when he says to them, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know it for real. When you know it for real and in his second coming. The fullness of Psalm 118 is going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom and comes in and is truly received as king. Remember it said the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, that wasn't fulfilled yet in this part we're reading in Matthew 21, because at this time they're praising him. They haven't rejected him yet, but they're about to within the next few days. Folks, don't miss this. There's going to come a time. When the Jews do acknowledge. Remember we read it in Isaiah 49. He hasn't forgotten them. He cares. And those who survived the tribulation period. He's going to gather them from everywhere. And they're going to praise him. And he's going to enter into Jerusalem. And set up his kingdom. It's going to be an amazing, amazing day. Go ahead Chris. Was he talking to the Jews and the Gentiles? Well he was definitely talking to the nation of Israel. When he says you won't see me again. Until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because that's mainly the Jews that are going to be calling that out. So. Exactly all right now I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions here tonight so we start drawing this to a close. How sincere are your words of praise to Jesus? Remember he knows our hearts. Uh, let me just kind of just throw a couple of scriptures out at you then I'm going to encourage you so I'm going to scare you a little bit, but then I'm going to encourage you so stick with me here. go to um, Matthew chapter 15 <clears throat> Go to Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. In Matthew 15, verse 7, Jesus says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He knew that even though they were saying they honored him, he knew that they didn't. Back up to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Go to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 25. In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is at the beginning of his ministry. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about this man, for he himself knew. What was in man? These people believed in him, but he said, no, they really don't. It's not real. How sincere are your words of praise to Jesus? Remember, he knows your heart. All right, that's the scary part. Here's the encouragement. Have anybody here, show of hands, wished they would love God a little more than they do? I got to be honest with you. You know how David wrote as the deer pants for the streams of water. So my soul longs after you. I've been in church. I've sang that song. And I got to be honest with you. I've had to be honest in my heart and say, Lord, I don't feel that way all the time. It's easy to sing it, but I, you know the truth. I, I don't hunger for you like that. Here's the good news. Go to Second Thessalonians, chapter three. Go to Second Thessalonians, chapter three. Look at verse five. Second Thessalonians, chapter three, verse five. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. For too long, many of us have said, Lord, I want to I'm going I'm to love you better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do more. No, you don't get it. Those people in Matthew 7 who said, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons that he didn't know them And they didn't know him because they thought that there were things that they were doing that were going to get them right before God. Didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Lord, we did stuff. Is it what you do that moves God? No, it's your faith. It's your trust in his steadfast love. And if you're like me and you'd love to see your heart love God more, here's what you do. You don't promise to do better. You ask God to do it in you. Oh, by the way, is that something he desires? If you ask anything according to his will, you know that he hears you. And if you know that you have, he's heard you, you know that you have the thing that you ask. Oh, by the way, that doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. God's going to do it in his way, and his time, and he's going to maybe take some of you through a trial To really come to an understanding of how much God loves you and how much you love him. And I don't know how he's going to do it for each of us. But let me just tell you, ask God. Don't fall into that group of people that say the right things, but try to do it in their own strength. Say, Lord, I want a deeper love for you. I want my treasure to be you so my heart will follow. But I can't do it. But you promised that you would. So I'm going to ask you to direct my heart to love you more. Remember how I've been telling you to meditate on what the scripture says about this wonderful salvation we've been given and all that stuff as he begins to open your eyes more and more of what it is you've received your heart will follow. Go ahead. Glenn. But he knows our heart so he knows how sincere we are in the asking. Yes, he knows your heart. He knows how sincere you are in the asking. If he asks, he's going to check your heart and find out if it's a real exactly. That's for sure. That's for sure. Now, look at verses 12 through 17 in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple. We're not going to finish this section tonight. I'm just going to pull out a couple of things. We'll pick back up here next week. As Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now, as we wrap up our study of this section of Matthew for tonight, I want to pull out a couple of things and we won't from Jesus' cleaning of the, cleansing of the temple. We won't get into all of them. We'll finish them next week. But first thing is this. This is actually the second time that Jesus has clean, cleaned the temple out. A lot of people don't realize that. But if you do a study back in John chapter 2, again, you have to go look at it for yourself. Jesus actually, at the beginning of his ministry, John records the beginning of his ministry. The other gospel writers record the end of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, he went into the temple and wiped it all out as well. But if you look, there's a difference And the first one, he made a whip and he drove him out with the whip. And what he said was totally different than what he says here. And also uh, what happens in the whole uh, whole context is different. So one time at the beginning of his ministry, he cleans him out. But then this one's at the end of his ministry. And in this one, in this one, he actually quotes from two Old Testament passages. We won't get to them tonight. We'll get to them next week. But I can't wait to show you next week that... In quoting from the first one, my house should be called a house of prayer. He's actually prophesying about the millennial kingdom and how Jew and Gentile together are going to be able to worship him in the millennial kingdom. I'll show that to you. But then I, for years, have thought when he said you've made it a den of robbers, he was just making a statement. You guys are cheating and making it a den of robbers. Actually, I've come to realize, and I'll show you this next week as well. He's quoting from another Old Testament passage in Jeremiah. And then that one it's a prophecy through Jeremiah that says, don't you rest in the fact that the temple's here and you're okay. If you don't obey me, I'll destroy this temple. And as you know, because of their rejection of him, it was destroyed. So we're going to take a look at those. And the last thing I'm going to just make a little commercial about for next week, I really want you to be here, is this section where the chief priests and the scribes come and they say, don't you hear what these kids are saying? And when Jesus says yes, and then he quotes from a passage in the book, in the book of Psalms. We'll get there next week. I want to just give you a little heads up. I'm going to show you next week how Jesus is actually claiming his deity by saying what he says here. Because that Psalm that he's quoting from actually is a full Psalm of praise to God. And it's very clear that it's to God alone. And when Jesus says, don't you remember how it was written and how it says Out of the mouth of infants, you've ordained praise. These kids are saying it to me. And Jesus is literally saying to them, I am God. Can't wait to show that to you next week. We'll get there then. I love you. Thanks for coming.